Cheers. 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 Oh, right. Skull. With all of the enthusiasm. <laughs> that honestly was what kept me going, you know, that because I liked standing apart from a crowd. I liked being one of a few. And I wouldn't even say that I do my own thing so that people can follow me. I say I do my own thing so I can inspire others to do their own thing. Well, I guess that's like following me philosophically to, to follow the philosophy of being an individual. Welcome to Pour Me a Mozart. I am here with my co-host, Patty. And this is my co-host, Asia. Hello, and Hi. cheers. Beautiful. Thank you. You know, you mentioned before we got started recording, you needed to get up and go get your glasses. And I, like, forgot. It was, like, drink glasses for the clinky clinky. Oh, you thought it was <laughs> eyeglasses. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, how are you? Well, I I just am recovering from another bout of sciatica. So I feel like I'm finally back in the saddle, ready to get back to my normal life. Because I don't know if anyone else has ever, who's listening, has ever dealt with sciatic pain. But it's really something that just gets you on, literally on your butt. And mobility is one of the most painful things. Like even simple acts of, even trying to find a position lying down. It's just so painful and uncomfortable and you never really know when the end is gonna be. But I've made some dramatic improvements the past few days. So I'm just very grateful. It's, I sort of feel like there's a movement of a Beethoven string quartet, no, Opus 132, and I never know how to pronounce it. I'm such a, <laughs> but the Highland, Highland, it's the third movement. Let's just put it that way. Okay. I'm not sure what you're trying to pronounce, so I'm sorry I can't help you. <laughs> I know. I I should know I should know how to pronounce it, but uh, it's the third movement of Opus 132, and Beethoven wrote it when he was very sick, but also experienced a recovery. And it goes between music that's really pensive and slow and canonic, very choir-like, and then it gets into these really outburst, jovial sections. And so that's where I sort of feel like I'm at right now. It's like, finally, I'm able to just return back to normal. That's yeah. a long way of saying how I've been doing. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll say sciatic pain is like a common ailment, but the level to which yours is, like, it that's not so common. So I hope none of the listeners out there have experienced that level of sciatic pain. But yeah, I don't wish this pain. On, even on my worst enemy, I don't wish this pain. It's not. Speaking of, who fun. is your worst enemy? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's okay. You don't have to answer. <laughs> How are you, Asia? I am tired. Yeah, I've had, well, I guess this will come out in probably end of June, early July when I'm either, you know, in the middle of a break or just getting started for summer camp. But right now in, oh, it's May. I almost said April. For the entire month of April, I've been like all over the Midwest playing in orchestras. And I learned a musical that ran for four weeks. And this is the closing weekend. And it's just been... It's been a lot. Yeah. I did have a day off last week, but that's because I was sick. And that's mm -hmm. not the best way to have a day off. And it feels bad to have to cancel things too. So I'm 
really looking forward to kind of the school year ending and teaching being done. I taught the kids this morning and I'm very tired. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also feel like there's no, never a year where April is calm. Hmm. Even in school, I felt like April was the most hectic month. And so I, I sort of feel like I maybe my body's response was to shut down. <laughs> but I also had had a lot of things going on in April as well. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad that it's starting to wind down for you, though. Yeah, the end is near. Yeah. Um, and I'm really looking forward to I don't have a ton on my schedule in June. I, I haven't been practicing just because I'm playing my instruments like every day. Yeah. And I just like I'm just too tired for actual practice, but I'm looking forward to this being over and kind of exploring some of my own repertoire. And like, I don't know, that was something that I found just so valuable over the pandemic was like, suddenly no one was telling me what to play, no orchestra, no teacher. And I'm going to be pretty intentional about giving myself that time again this summer. So, yeah, I guess I should take back one year where April was not busy, which was 2020. But other than that year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you are pretty busy with Animal Crossing, but that's a... Yeah. Well, that's like a different kind of busy. That's like, you (laughs) know. (laughs) Anyway, before we welcome our guest, would you like to tell us a little bit about Anthony? Absolutely. Anthony Green is someone I actually met over the pandemic and I had only met him virtually until about a year ago when he came to Walker West, which is where I teach privately, uh, the Walker West Music Academy. And he gave a little presentation to their students there. And I just met up with him in person and finally got to see him face to face. But he was someone that I reached out to for my podcast, Hiding Behind the Music Stand. And I interviewed him about his life and an interest outside, which was art. And I just found him to be so intelligent and so bright and just a wonderful presence. And we've just kind of became friends over that interview to the point where I even performed some of his music, one of which was his cello solo piece called Recovering, which is about a breakup. And it's it's challenging for the performer because it's uh, outside of the normal, what you expect to see notes uh, and play, but it's more he was trying to target the groaning and the misery part of that recovery from a breakup. And so part of the notation was to emulate voice. So, and speech pattern rather than any other tonal linkage. So that was a fun collaboration I did. And I performed that with the ensemble 113 in the twin cities uh, on one of their programs. So, I'm always thrilled to see Anthony, and I am so excited to see him today. Yeah, I'm excited to meet him. So let's bring him on in. Cheers. 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 Welcome, Anthony. Anthony is the co-founder of Castle of Our Skins, which is based in Boston, Massachusetts. And it's an organization that has been uh, going for how long again, Anthony, now at this point? We are in our 10th season tenth, and wow. we will celebrate our 10th birthday in October. That's amazing. And this organization has primarily focused on unearthing and presenting music of Black composers and other voices that have been suppressed in the past. So even before the the surge of this in 
2020, they have been doing this work. So thank you so much for uh, doing this for 10 years. And I can't wait to see how far it goes after. Yes, definitely. Me too. This is my last official year with oh, okay. Castle of Our Skins, but I will, you know, I co-founded the ensemble, so I'll always be part of the ensemble, Yeah. but I will be now Associate Director Emeritus and co-founder. Awesome. Nice title. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm super glad that you're here with us today. Let's talk about your requested drink. Um, I have to admit this has now jumped to the top of the list is scariest thing I drink while doing a podcast because you wanted to drink just straight vodka. So let's hear about um, <laughs> your love of this vodka. Actually, I don't even know how to pronounce the the brand. Yeah, I haven't heard. It's an Austrian vodka and it has a Polish name. So I'm thinking it's Monopolova. Mm-hmm. That's what I've said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's just go with Monopolova. But when it comes to drinks and cocktails and stuff, I am quite extreme. I either like the girliest cocktail where you can't taste that there's alcohol in it, mm-hmm. or I like straight alcohol. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I don't like anything in between. I And I'm not a big fan of martinis or Campari sodas, anything that's considered a mature adult cocktail. I'm not, I don't like that. You know, give me a Midori sour, give me a vodka cranberry, you know, just something super, super- Curacao. Fruity, exactly. Or just give me the vodka, that's it. Just straight, cut out the middleman, right? So. I am the middleman then, because I like everything in the center of that. (laughs) Hey, I didn't say it, so. (laughs) (laughs) But I have some some cool stories about this vodka. So the first story is how I got to even know about this vodka. I was playing piano in the pit of Bye Bye Birdie. It was a production in Longmont, Colorado, One time, one day after rehearsal, the conductor, he just expressed his appreciation for everybody who was working hard. And he sort of threw in an implication that we may have been underpaid. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to get us all an extra present. And it seemed like he was joking at the time, but he said, what can I get you? And I just said, a bottle of vodka. And (laughs) the thing is, I wouldn't even normally request something like this because I don't drink all that much. Mm -hmm. And because I thought he was joking, I just answered with something that I thought would be a joke. Right. So the next rehearsal, he said, here you go, and pulled out his bottle of Montpelova vodka. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I was stunned. And I got home that day and I said, okay, I have to drink this vodka. And I took one sip and I just thought, what the hell? This is the best vodka I've ever tasted. (laughs) Wow, okay. So that's story number one. Story number two, fast forward to 2021. My friend Jason, uh, he's a pianist, Jason Harding. 
and his wife, Kimi Kawashima, they arranged a commission for me for a solo piano piece, a very lengthy solo piano piece. I wrote a piano sonata that is based on James Baldwin. It's about an hour long, between 50 minutes and an hour long. Wow. Yeah. And wow. yeah, it's one of the most ambitious, complex pieces I've ever composed. So the first time I came out to visit them to talk about the piece and to talk about other things and just to meet each other in person, because before then we had just been corresponding through email and did a couple of things on Zoom, et cetera, social media. So I come out to Salt Lake City and I visit with them and they had asked about my favorite drinks, what I would want in the house. And I said, oh, Monopolova vodka. <laughs> so I get there and they hadn't tried it yet. And they said, okay, well, we're not really vodka drinkers, but we found this vodka and we would love to drink it with you. And I said, great, I think your minds might be changed. So they started drinking it and they said, wow, this is the best vodka I've ever had in my life. <laughs> so... I came back the next year for the for the world premiere and they told me every month since I left they had bought a bottle of Monopolova vodka. Wow. <laughs> it's now a staple in their cabinet. <laughs> That's amazing. You should be getting some royalties from them. I, I definitely <laughs> should. I should write an opera. Yeah, <laughs> Monopolova. <laughs> what would the plot be <laughs> oh i don't know just people having a good time it, it, there would it. be no drama it would be the first opera with no, no drama, drama. <laughs> <laughs> with those stories in mind and everyone being like this is the best vodka i've ever had i am now super disappointed that i couldn't find it but i did get chopin vodka which is also a potato vodka and we had it in stock at the bar, but like, I didn't often, you know, go to the back bar and like drink the liquors, <laughs> you know, it was kind of frowned upon, but yeah, I am going to try this Chopin vodka straight and then I will dump it in my coffee because I can't <laughs> drink oh. straight vodka. Well, here's the thing. Chopin is my second favorite vodka. Oh, yes. I love it. And just sip it slowly, you know, just enjoy it. Well, the other thing is I have to play a musical tonight. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> you I might play I... it better, to be honest. I might. <laughs> All right, here we go. All right. Good luck. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have never, I was just talking to Patty last night. Okay, now it burns. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was talking to Patty last night about how I don't put a lot of stock into different brands of vodka. Because like vodka's vodka. It doesn't have like a flavor flavor oh, no. profile. Right. I guess it's hitting me kind of hard. <laughs> but yeah, that was good. Yeah, no, vodka is extremely complex and has a wide range of flavor profiles especially when you start getting into the handmade vodkas. So you can get potato vodkas and horseradish vodkas, garlic vodkas. I saw and beet vodka yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you can get 
a, a tremendously wide range of vodka types and strengths. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful thing. You have inspired me. <laughs> I usually just get New Amsterdam if I even have vodka. <laughs> Your I'm face says it all. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Ooh, I am so not a fan of New Amsterdam. Although it's not, <laughs> it's not the worst of the typical commercial bar vodkas so what would be the worst what would you absolutely not drink i i guess i can say this on a podcast because i don't have any affiliation but yeah i'm not the biggest smirnoff fan i don't care i'm just reacting to react I'm I'm sort of a fan of their flavored drinks just because of the whole girlishness of them. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I used to drink Smirnoff vanilla and cranberry juice all the time. That and that Yeah, that for it tastes like cotton candy. It's amazing. <laughs> but in terms of Smirnoff straight vodka, it's really trash. And I think that's why the flavored vodkas are so great because their normal vodka has literally no flavor. So it's like pouring a simple syrup, a flavored simple syrup into whatever you mix it with. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, at Tanglewood, they're known for the Boston Symphony Orchestra concerts in the shed where you sit outside and you're under the stars and it's like a picnic sort of scenario. And um, I got into getting sweet tea vodka so i'd get sweet tea vodka and i'd get lemonade and i'd make spiked arnold palmers basically and that was really that was nice like especially during you know a nice summer humid afternoon kind of thing yeah that sounds like a drink i would easily drink (laughs) yeah yeah it's a little dangerous i have to admit (laughs) i also had struggled i realized that molotova Monopolova. Monopolova. Okay. That vodka is not even sold in Minnesota. What? So, or I couldn't find it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't find it um, with Total Wine, for instance. It was like, we could ship it to you from in like Illinois. And I was like, okay, let's, yeah. So in the time that we had, um, well, I was I, drinking two Total Wine last night, and Patty was like, well, you can go to Indiana. I was like, not tonight. Or was it Indiana? <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah, one of those states. Yeah. Um, so I I went with Prairie. Uh, the That's like a local distillery-ish, like Minnesota distillery. Um, nice. Yeah, because I and I looked into getting some potato vodkas, but there is I, there wasn't Chopin, and I was like, the and the other, I can't remember the brand, but it was like, $14 a bottle and I was like that's gonna give me a hangover no thank you so <laughs> I was I just went with the with a tr- tried and trusted brand um, and I wanted to represent a local a local brand so I also uh, have not tried it straight so I made like a vodka tonic with a little lemon inside sounds it's good very beautiful. yes yeah. I'll see how long I can keep sipping on this straight that second sip was <laughs> a lot <laughs> I have to admit, though, I usually do gin and tonics because I, if I'm going to choose between gin and vodka, I choose gin because of the botanicals. But also, you're inspiring me to try a higher quality or better vodkas that have maybe more subtlety and nuance to them than, you know, your straight rail vodkas. And I, I've had yeah. I've had Chopin before, and I remember enjoying it too. 
Yeah. And Grey Goose is good, too. Yeah. Yeah, Grey Goose is good. It's not bad. (laughs) I just think it was funny that Grey Goose was the only vodka. It wasn't even the most expensive one, but it was the only vodka at Total Wine that had, like, a security tag on the top. Wow. Yeah. Although I do want to mention that if you go to Costco and if you get, there's, you know, they have the Kirkland vodka and there's two kinds. There's one that's the French kind and there's one that's the American kind. And honestly, the the American kind, which is like this ginormous bottle, it's like elite. I can't remember. It's just a lot of vodka for like $20, but it's actually pretty good. So oh. that's, that's definitely something to consider if, if you are, and also you don't need a Costco membership to go in and purchase alcohol. You can just oh. be, a, yeah. So I've, I've, I don't have a Costco membership and I am able to walk in and purchase alcohol. The more, you know? Yeah. And one thing that I love about Monopolova is that it's really cheap for the quality mm. that you get. So the typical bottle I think runs no more than 18 bucks, Hmm. but it can be even cheaper than that. And just for the quality of the vodka, it's, it's kind of amazing. Well, shall we talk about Anthony, the musician? Yeah, sure. Why not? So I am gathering, correct me if I'm wrong, but your main instrument is the piano. Yes. I'm curious to know how you got started on the piano. If you've dabbled or gotten a real deep dive into other instruments along the way. Any influential teachers on that journey? Oh, you're going to make me cry. Oh. (laughs) I'm obsessed with all my teachers. They have been, you know, the most wonderful people in my life. I got started in music when I was five years old. There was a piano in the corner of my kindergarten classroom. And my kindergarten teacher, Willie Mayette, would play some simple stuff and I would observe his hands and listen to what he played. And I would go to the piano and play it, figure it out. So that's how I got my journey into music, just playing piano by ear when I was five. At the same time, my mom took me to church every weekend. So I had exposure to these incredible church musicians and I sang in the choir. I was always doing musical things. And I really just wanted to play piano. So some of the pianists at church would also help me figure things out. And those people are Janice Allen, who is a doctor and also a fantastic pianist. She played for the children's choir when I was in the choir and Mamie Oliver, who was the pastor's wife. And she is one of the most incredible pianists I've ever met. I'm pretty sure she's self-taught and just played piano by ear, kind of a similar journey in church. And Ernest Carr was also a really wonderful pianist. He was the uncle of one of my friends in high school and just a fantastic uh, human being in terms of his enthusiasm and his loyalty to the church and to music. So I had these three wonderful people before I started piano lessons. I had these three wonderful people guiding me into music. 
So right around 10 years old, I started lessons. It was a journey to find the final teacher. I started with a neighborhood piano teacher around the corner from where I live. Her name uh, was Lanier Horn, well-respected uh, pianist in the community. But I, I had learned too much for her. She, so she said, I need a, a teacher that can teach intermediate piano. And so for a while, I started taking lessons with a jazz pianist named Willie Mayette. But it just didn't work out. Jazz was not my thing somehow. And I was in the Providence Public Library, the Rochambeau branch down the street from my house. And I saw somebody, a wonderful young woman named Hannah Good, who was looking at some sheet music. And I asked her what she was learning. And she said, I had just come from a piano lesson from Susan Kelly. She lives right down the street from the library. And I said, oh, you know, I'm looking for a piano teacher. And she gave me Susan Kelly's information. And I think that the following week, I started lessons with Susan Kelly. And I stayed with her all the way till 11th grade in high school. And at that point, she said, I don't think I can teach you anymore. So I want you to take piano lessons with my teacher so you can prepare for college and stuff like that. Um, but she said, I don't want to not see you every week. So I'll give you viola lessons for free. <laughs> so, <laughs> Why so, viola? <laughs> so handsome. There's the cellist. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just... Did she also play viola? Like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> Was it like a new endeavor for her too? <laughs> of all the instruments. <laughs> but hey, that's how we get more violists in the world. They're important. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, she had taught her children viola. And I only recently learned of her viola journey, but she started pretty late in her life went through all the Suzuki books and got to a level where she plays with the Rhode Island Philharmonic. And she was even in the movie Meet Joe Black when it was recorded here. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a pit orchestra in one of the last scenes and my piano teacher is playing with the orchestra. Oh my gosh, that's so that's cool. Hilarious. Yeah, she talked about how she had to get her hair done in a special way for sure. the movie. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so I took viola my senior year while taking piano lessons. And that was my piano journey, my music journey until my freshman year of, of college. That is such a sweet story. Just like everything about it. <laughs> so you still perform and you're a composer. Do you feel any sort of pressure to look a certain way as a performer, as a composer? Are those two, I guess, facets different? Totally. You know, growing up in Providence, Rhode Island, as a young Black child in the 90s, I did not see many Black people, irrespective of gender, in classical music. Not to say that I didn't see any. I was fortunate to have my friend Daryl Carr, who was the nephew of Ernest Carr, 
he played piano. He also studied with my teacher, Susan Kelly. And he also played clarinet and saxophone and flute. So he was quite a talented musician. Professionally, there were some Black teachers that knew of me, one of whom gave me quite a bit of music books, Chopin Etudes, Schumann Piano Music, Haydn Sonatas. I still have actually quite a bit of those books. And then just in terms of who is a Black composer in the world, there was Scott Joplin and Robert Nathaniel Dett. There was a pianist at my church who played some Dead, Jesse Banks, actually. He was, I should have mentioned him earlier. He was actually another one of my big influences. But I think I didn't mention him earlier because he came to my church after I started studying with Susan Kelly. So he didn't really have an influence on my piano development growing up, but he did expose me to Robert Nathaniel Dett, who is a wonderful Black composer. I love his music and I loved the way that that uh, Jesse Banks played the, the Dett. So that was a big influence. And then I remember at the library, the same library where I was introduced to the young lady who introduced me to my piano teacher. There was a CD called Black Diamonds by the pianist Althea Waits. And she had played a sonata by Florence Price and Troubled Water by Margaret Bonds and some pieces by William Grant Still. And then this fantastic piece called Sketches Set Seven by Ed Bland. That was the only contemporary piece on the CD. And I remember listening to it thinking, this is psychotic and fascinating and angular and amazing. And I just really want to know more about Ed Bland and one day play this piece. At the moment, I didn't think I had the ability to learn that piece. And I didn't even really ask for a score or look for a score or anything, but I just remember that piece sticking with me. And those were really the only Black composers that I knew growing up. You know, William Grant Still, Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, Robert Nathaniel Dett, and Ed Bland. I mean, that's more than me. I only knew of Scott Joplin, basically, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Scott Joplin. And the thing is, somehow, I just sort of put Florence Price and Margaret Bonds and William Grant still in the background. Um, actually, there was another pianist, I am blanking on his name, but he gave a couple of recitals in Providence and he played pieces by Howard Swanson and Ulysses K. And yeah, those were black composers, but I don't know, you grow up and you play Beethoven and you play Debussy and you play Bach and you're told these are the composers that are the composers worth studying. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I came across Florence Price when I was young. Did I think to play any of her, her music? No, not really, <laughs> but yeah, you know that. So in terms of being a classical pianist, I wouldn't necessarily say that there was pressure to look a certain way, but 
when you see the overwhelming majority of people not looking like you, not looking, not with black skin, not with brown skin, then you sort of think that you're out of place. Or you think to yourself, I'm contributing because I am one of but a handful. Right. And that honestly was what kept me going, you know, that because I liked standing apart from a crowd. I liked being one of a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. It's also very inspiring. Oh, yeah, sure. definitely. That also, yeah, as a composer and as a performer, definitely there is this thing of, okay, you are Black. Who are the other Black people? They are sometimes difficult to find. And as I grew up, I noticed this more and more. But once again, that just told me, don't quit, because there are more of you out there, and you have to be an example for the for the children who are coming up mm-hmm. who want to be in classical music. They need somebody to see. They need somebody that they know they can talk to and rely on. So I just stopped caring about those pressures, really. <laughs> because if I, if I worried about those types of pressures, then I know I would probably not perform as well as I would like to. So the easiest thing for me to do is to to just cut it off. Um, Leos are notorious for being able to cut things off. <laughs> I'm also a Leo. Mm-hmm. You can just cut it, right? You could just shut down, shut it down. So as <laughs> to me, Anthony, it, it sounds a lot like how do you how do you handle conformity? Not you as in, oh, I guess I'm asking you Mm -hmm. specific, but I I suppose I'm asking the general you because I think that, I mean, speaking as a string instrumentalist and an orchestra, we conform to wearing black, but do we Mm. have to? Like, or, you know, what are the pros and cons to that? And to me, it sounds like what you say is, I don't care about conforming. I'm just going to be myself and, and people will follow. And I mean, that's, you know, and I don't know if that's ever gotten you into any situation where, uh, or if you feel like, no, this is a moment that I actually should conform or something like that. Mm. Yeah, I say all the time that I hate boxes, and I don't think that they should exist. And I'm one of those people that if somebody says I am not in a box, then I will put myself in a box to say that that person is wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I <laughs> hate you assumption. Yeah, it's, it's the weirdest thing, you know. And I wouldn't even say that I do my own thing so that people can follow me. I say I do my own thing so I can inspire others to do their own thing. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess that's like following me philosophically to to follow the philosophy of be an individual. Um, But, you know, I I would hate for somebody to say, Anthony, I noticed that you composed this piece using this system that you created. Teach me your system so I can compose pieces like that. I would say, no, I am not Paul Hindemith. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll get back to your favorite thing, boxes and 
individualism in a second. But before we move on, I'm curious to know what your favorite instrument is that you do not play. Harp, hands down. Ooh. Yeah, that's okay. a question. I always say to myself, if I could do my life over again, I would be a harpist. You know, I so right now I'm doing a gig that includes, it's three cellos and harp and choir, which is like, what an instrumentation. That's like, you know, the best, no offense, Asia, the best instruments with, with, with choir. Like, oh my God. Anyway, but uh, three cellos too, you know, but I'm sitting next to the harpist now. I'm just reminded of really good harp playing and just how beautiful that instrument really is i was just thinking like man if i could also start over and like or maybe there's time in my in my later life that i can get a harp and and learn how to play harp you know it's just like such a yeah i'll stop gushing about harp but it's really like <laughs> i feel like it's an instrument that people rarely think about because mm -hmm. it's it's clunky you know it's it's a big instrument you can't collapse it yeah hard to transport and hard to play from what I understand. I worked really closely with the harpist um, going into the pandemic. So then we kind of made it work and she's moved away, but shout out to Hannah. But yeah, it was, it was really fun making music with her. Aww. How did you get started writing your own music? When I was very young, I loved to do things just all the time. People were reading Lord of the Rings and Boxcar Children and The Hobbit. And I would be reading Japanese English dictionaries and how to bind your own books. And I would read books about origami and macrame and magic tricks and bead making. I took clay classes. I learned how to cook from my mom and my brother, who's five years older than me. And my mom realized that I loved to bake and do arts and crafts. I wasn't really someone who, who could just go a day without making something. And I think when you mix this love for creation with music, you eventually get a composer. So as a child, I did compose some songs and some short piano pieces, but nobody told me you could study com composition and you could grow up to be a composer. And that's why I entered my undergraduate as a piano major. One of the undergraduate composition majors saw that I was writing an opera my freshman year and said, you should double major. <laughs> so I added a major in my sophomore year and I ended up dropping the piano major. Writing an opera is like, no, you know, that's no, you gotta know what you're kind of doing, I assume, right? <laughs> I didn't know. I just said, hey, I wanna write an opera. And I finished one scene and I started the second scene. So the opera was loosely in support of gay marriage. Gotcha. And then gay marriage happened. I think it was only in Massachusetts at the time. Uh -huh. I started to think, well, maybe this opera just isn't needed anymore. So I just stopped writing it. Oh, I see. <laughs> what? You know. Yeah. This is passe. So. <laughs> Thankfully. Thankfully, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Honestly, it was a really geeky opera. And I am a huge geek and I still am and I, I do love that about myself but this particular opera 
I think it crossed a line a bit. So the opera, <laughs> the opera was called Adam and Eve, but Eve is spelled Y V E S, like the French Eve, which is a male name. Mm-hmm. And because it was called Adam and Eve, I decided to flip the Genesis story backwards and include Lilith. So the whole story is about these two guys who are living in this gated community that's rather conservative and they are a couple, but they can't be out to the, in their community. So in order to really let the community know that they are straight, they invite this woman named Lilith to come live with them and pretend to be a girlfriend to one of them, but she ends up actually seducing one of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. This, could still, this could still have legs and as a plot twist. I would go watch know. this. I would go see this in a heartbeat. <laughs> and because Lilith is like, she's known as a baby killer in in like according to bible biblical mythology so the lilith in my opera worked at an abortion clinic gotcha gotcha <laughs> wow yeah it was just a little bit a little bit too much no i understand i i get <laughs> it could alienate someone on many levels if they if they felt like they wanted to be alienated yeah but isn't that the point of Definitely. art to push boundaries? So like, I'm still here for all of it. <laughs> <laughs> We're just saying okay. write the write the finish the opera and then <laughs> please, please we'll bring finish. the crowd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm fascinated by the stories you tell in your operas, and I'm really looking forward to getting to hear your music in the second half of the podcast. But I wanted to get back to the boxes, like I've alluded to. Yes, can you? Or should you define the genre of music that you write? You might find the answer to this question quite surprising and cheeky, but I would say classical. And I say classical knowing that it's an extremely problematic term that nobody really likes. Well, it's funny that you say that because Asia cleverly didn't ask you the first question of that question, which is, is there a better... Is there a better term for classical music? <laughs> well, there are much better terms for classical music, and we don't really need to find them. Because, yeah, classical is, is the convenient term, but it's our responsibility to educate people about what this music truly is and how it may have elitist implications, but it actually wasn't intended to be an elitist art form. And as soon as we can start to kind of break this down, I think it will become what it should be. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. Actually, the reason I didn't ask the question is because a few people have responded with sort of the same thing. And I was like, oh, I feel like I have my answer, but um, you've brought yet another another thing to consider about that. So, and thank you, Patty, for bringing the question to the table. Let's dive into your music. Okay, yeah. 
So the ensemble is the Society for New Music Players. And the concert was arranged by the Society for New Music, which is a new music organization based in Syracuse. And the concert happened at the Joyce Hergenen Auditorium at Syracuse University. That was March 26, 2023. And the title of the piece, one more time. The title is Chiamo la Morte. dramatic <laughs> yes I like the drama <laughs> um is that from one of your operas or is this a standalone piece this piece is a standalone piece it's in two movements and it is for mezzo-soprano flute oboe clarinet I think specifically bass clarinet and then viola and cello. Uh, no violin, huh? No violin, no. <laughs> I like how you're passing a lot of textures around in that excerpt. And to me, oftentimes, maybe it's just my training from an orchestral position of, or a pit position of being orchestra to voice, but that really the voice shares that lineage of instrumental aspects of you know the the fluttering or the tremolo or whatever whatever it was and that it's just seamless seamless between voices and instruments yeah totally so in that particular section so the text is by dante and this particular text was composed after the love of his life died and so in this particular section of the poem, he's referencing life's cruelties, and that's the word crudelitate. So I thought I would uh, repeat this word and create music that reflects cruelty, but still in the tonal language of the piece. So you have this reflective introduction to cruelty and then crudelitate happens and then the music becomes super dense. Mm -hmm. This is the densest part of the piece. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and towards the end, you have the lowest sung pitch of the piece. And the F sharp all... or G flat, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. And all of those ensemble hits that is how the second movement begins. Hmm. Yeah. So that this 
excerpt is a quasi recapitulation of the second movement, but also this summation of life's cruelties for Dante or for the protagonist of the poem. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about Scourge and Mediation? Oh, yeah. So Scourge and Mediation was a commission from the University of Florida, Gainesville. And I composed this piece really this year. I started thinking about the piece last year, but the meat of the composition comes from 2023. So the excerpt that you will hear is from the premiere performance, which was April 23rd, 2023, at the University of Florida Gainesville Music Building, performed by the University of Florida New Music Ensemble. Can you tell us about the piece as a whole? Yes, totally. From the title, you can infer that the piece is in two parts, Scourge and Mediation. And these aren't separate movements. It is a one movement piece. But the first part is quite dense and thick and brass. And the second half is much more reflective and calming. And that really just fits the narrative of the title. I wasn't really thinking so, so much about a narrative when I composed the piece, but we are living in these weird times when politically this country is at some of the most extreme of its dynamics. The separation, for instance, between the right and the left, I think, are so vast that it's about time for a mediator to come in. (laughs) While I was not thinking about that when I was composing this piece, I think I'm just constantly thinking about such things and they just spill into my creative endeavors just because that's kind of what's going on in the world so is the i'm not super well versed in percussion but to me that sounded like one person playing a snare drum right yeah yeah it's one person playing two different snare drums and one yeah one snare drum has the snares on and the other snare drum doesn't have the snares on 
Okay. So is that part, because um, I haven't whole, heard the whole piece, so I could be way out of line here, but is that part kind of the mediator in the piece? You're extremely close. It's what happens right <laughs> before the mediation section happens. Okay. Okay. Percussion, tearing the world apart just enough to meet a mediator. <laughs> well, this part is also a little bit in homage to Ed Bland, who is the composer that I mentioned earlier on. And he has a piece where there is a really kick-ass timpani solo. It's one of the most amazing moments in music just ever, really. And I always wanted to do something like that to just pay homage to Ed Bland. So that's, that's kind of what this moment is. I haven't really told anybody that, so. Aw, exclusive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it. It's a really groovy, that excerpt was like really groovy at the beginning. Yeah, and Ed Bland, he created his own music style, which he called urban classical funk. So you could probably, <laughs> if you listened to the Bland moment and then listened to this excerpt again, you would just say, okay, Anthony, I get it. <laughs> yeah. But I have to mention these things because, you know, I, I think for the most part, I'm acutely aware of when I'm borrowing from composers, either living or past composers. And I don't mind, I actually think it's my responsibility to acknowledge whom I'm borrowing from when I'm consciously borrowing from somebody. Yeah. So I'm not one of those composers that would just not say anything and just sort of let it go by and let everybody think that I just came up with this on my own. It's like, no, mm -hmm. I didn't. Yeah, I, I have to, to give respect and, and credit where credit is due. Yeah, of course. Could you tell us a little bit about A Simple Insistence? Yes. So this is a piece for solo piano. I was commissioned by Boston University's piano department to write a required piece for a piano performance competition. So this competition happened on March 29th, which is when this recording took place, March 29th, 2023. And there were 11 competitors and they all were required to play this piece. So I heard 11 different performances of this piece. <laughs> I was told that the piece has to be between three and five minutes it has to have elements of virtuosity and it has to be learned within a month because the performers got it, got the music the month before the competition. So this recording is by the winner of that competition. Her name is Lee Yuyong and she played it at Boston University's concert hall, March 29th. And as a winner, she will have a solo recital next fall at the Psy Performance Center. I am not sure if she will play this piece again. It's not required, but I hope she does because she did a really fantastic job.
No kidding, is it virtuosic? (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the thing. You know, I'm a pianist, and I'm actually quite a lazy pianist. So throughout my life, I always played pieces that sound much more difficult than they actually are. Uh And Mm -hmm. when I go to compose some pieces for piano, I try to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. So this sounds extremely difficult. But if you played piano and you just read through the piece, you would think, oh, my goodness, like, this is mostly patterns. Everything is a five finger position. Like, (laughs) I just did all of the things so that a pianist could sound extremely sparkly but also be extremely comfortable playing it. Well, because they only have a month to prepare. And they only had a month. Right. Yeah. But I also say that, like, I point that out because that's like what every good, com- good quote unquote composer does, right? Is like, I mean, people say Popper's difficult to play, but Popper is, is yes, is, but it's also very fits in the hand of a cellist because Popper was a cellist, for instance. Like there's there's all kinds of examples like that where if they know the instrument so well, they know how to write for the instrument and make it sound harder than it is. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it does. It's a lot of notes, a lot of black on the page is what people say, you know? Well, that's not, I, always, yeah. I always feel like there are different levels to this, right? Because as much as the Chopin etudes feel super comfortable to play, they're also just really difficult pieces. Musically, you mean? Just everything. Musically, virtuosically, just everything about these pieces is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a simple insistence, it sounds very musically difficult um, in terms of the virtuosity, but actually it isn't. It just really sounds super virtuosic. Mm-hmm. And and I think the magic of a player like Li Yuyuan is that she's so good that she can make it even sound much more sparkly than I I could play it, to be honest. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm not at that level of a pianist. Right. Yeah. yeah, you used the word sparkly twice to describe this piece. And that, like after just hearing that section is so perfect. And I loved, I loved the sparkle. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. You know, after I finished writing this piece, I composed it during a residency at the Kimmel Harding Nelson Center. And this was in February. And after I finished writing it, I thought to myself, this is the most French piece I've ever composed. (laughs) And (laughs) I wrote to the woman who organized the commission. And I said, yeah, I was thinking a lot about Debussy. I was playing Debussy at the time, but I was also thinking about Dutia because I really love the Dutia Sonata. Now this participant who won, she played the Dutia Sonata right before playing this piece. Oh, there you so, go. A part of me just thinks like she had an unconscious head up. Connection. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. She had an unconscious yeah, unfair advantage. Definitely hear the Debussy in this, but it's like it's Debussy with a little bit more of an edge, like a little bit more like I don't know, a Leo edge. I don't know if Debussy oh. was a Leo, but. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, was he a Leo? That's a good question. But I think Debussy <laughs> with an edge is Dutier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, I'm not Dutier. familiar with, so I'll need to go oh take a God. listen. 
Yes, listen to all you do to you. I think he has also just really fantastic violin music. Okay, cool. Yeah. Can I ask what is the simple what is the simple insistence? Oh, it's the repeated note. So the piece begins with a repeated note. Oh, I yeah. thought there was maybe I was hoping for a more philosophical answer ah, to that. No. <laughs> Very yeah, straightforward. Is- of like human rights or something. I don't know. <laughs> human rights, human rights. Yeah, right. We, we're just a cog in the machine. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We're unique. just individuals. Like everyone else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say, no, when I finished writing this piece, I just thought that there was this real insistency in terms of the repeated note. And when I get into this fluid gesture with these these, uh, motives that just constantly flow up, and that is also insistent. And then I get to this lighthearted part with that dum bum 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 rhythm Mm -hmm. but within that there's the there are these five finger gestures and that's also a type of insistency and everything just sort of circles around this repeated high note right so that was really just okay yeah and i thought it was kind of simplistic so that's why it's a simple simple yeah yeah um i also really just love alliteration and sibilance just linguistically Mm -hmm. so i have both alliteration and sibilance in the title Mm -hmm. right great so will you introduce conjure Yes, Conjure was commissioned by Dr. Kendra Wheeler, really not for anything in particular, but she always wanted to play a piece by me since coming across my music. And then the pandemic happened, and I thought this was a perfect moment to write a miniature for her. And it uses a text by another composer who is fascinated by haikus and has a really strong haiku writing practice. And her name is Regina Harris Bayaki. So this piece is called Conjure for solo saxophone. And Dr. Kendra Wheeler is playing it. She just recorded it in her house, but she has really good gear. And it uses a text by Regina Harris Bayaki. To conjure music. The moistened saxophone reads. Surf, the airwaves. I am so fascinated by how composers deal with 
solo instruments. I got really into solo violin during the pandemic. And I love that like we can play two notes at a time. We can play more than two notes at a time, but it's kind of a lie because you have to like break a chord or, you know, whatever. And just like how compared to the piano, you have to do that on the violin, but then you get something like the saxophone and like, you know, what do you, <laughs> what do you do? So I thought yeah. that was really cool to hear. Well, thank you. And I think the addition of spoken word in this also brings solo sax to a different plane and mm -hmm. introduces a different sonority, which you can use to break up the composition in, in various ways. So the, this piece is quite short. It's about three minutes in total. And I really just painted the haiku. Yeah, so composing it actually wasn't that difficult because the haiku was so good. All I had to do was think of the words and match the music. I'm a little bit ignorant of saxophone technique, but I have talked to some of my like more standard orchestral woodwind player friends. And I know there's like a different way to do vibrato in Europe versus the United States. And I was wondering, because her vibrato in places sounded quite wide, and I was wondering if that's just part of her technique or if that was something that you intentionally had written into the score that way. Both, actually. I do indicate um, wide vibrato and certain types of vibrato in the piece, but I think also Dr. Kendra Wheeler is a wonderful musician in terms of bringing out those colors. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting way to like almost get separate notes at the same time on the saxophone too. Yeah, and the sax can do multiphonics and you can sing and play at the same time. But the real trick with solo instruments that even Bach teaches us and even composers before Bach is with instruments that are mostly monophonic. If you arpeggiate, then psychologically we keep those notes in the background. Mm -hmm. So you can get away with doing a lot uh, with just one monophonic melody. Let's listen to your last piece. Yes. And let me introduce that. So the this piece comes from a piece originally composed for solo vibraphone. And the piece is called Movements in Movement and Sound. And this movement is called Lullaby. Over the pandemic, I was asked to contribute a video for the Cleveland Un Uncommon Sound Project. So I was near a toy piano and I realized that the toy piano that I had has the same range as the vibraphone. And this particular movement fit perfectly with the video that I was composing. So I just recorded this movement on my toy piano. So this is me performing my own piece on a toy piano, <laughs> uh, the lullaby movement from Movements in Movement and Sound.
so obviously the toy piano has way more overtones than the vibraphone would have. Totally. Did you find that that was something that was actually an added bonus when you performed it on toy piano? I wouldn't call it an added bonus. I would call it a different seasoning. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I think both the vibraphone version and the toy piano version are valid, you know? Um, oh, yeah. It, <laughs> when, on the toy, on the vibraphone, I indicate that the motor should be pretty high. So it has this wobbly psychedelic feel. Yeah. And I think the toy piano also has a psychedelic feel but in for a completely different reason right so right. i think it, it's interesting that they're both in this realm of psychedelic and also the mu the music itself is rather psychedelic like i think if i played it on the piano it would also sound very psychedelic mm -hmm. even though the piano isn't that psychedelic of an instrument as long as it sounds psychedelic i'm happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have to say that was not what i expected for a lullaby <laughs> Could you fall asleep to it, though? Uh, I don't know. I'll try tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. Anthony, I, would, I wanted to ask you a question just from a performer's perspective about a composer performing their own work. Because oftentimes, you know, I, I think of Britain and I think of, I, I, I guess I think of Britain when I think about people emulating what he sounded like when he played piano or when he played accompanimental parts of his sonatas or things like that. And I wanted to ask you if, if you had a particular opinion about that as a composer versus a, a performer playing your work, is there an element of your interpretation that you wish to impart to someone who might want to play it in the future? Well, the rhythms in this particular piece are, are quite tricky. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the people who have played this have gotten it right, but there's still this element of impromptu creation that could be elevated. So I think this recording, because I'm playing it, nails that aspect of the lullaby. Mm -hmm. um, that said, because I'm such a performer as well as a composer, I always like to give my performers creative freedom because the pieces that I like to play most are the pieces that have creative freedoms. I love playing Chopin for that reason because I think there's just so much interpretation possibilities that you can do with Chop with Chopin's music and I don't think Chopin is mad at that at all. You know? Right, right. I just wanted to point out that what we heard today were examples of Anthony's, you know, concert music, let's put it maybe. I don't know if there's another term better for that, but there's a lot of performance art that Anthony does as well. One of which I remember when I first was introduced to you and learning about you, one of which was a museum exposition where you were sitting there with black balloons and popping them one at a time, symbolizing the death of black people who were dying from police brutality and, and among other things. And so there's a lot more to Anthony's catalog than there is just simply concert music. And I encourage everyone to watch it and engage in it because I think it's really profound and powerful. 
But also, I know I have also been a participant in the performing art of it with 113 Ensemble and the Twin Cities here. I'm so sorry, Anthony, I'm forgetting the name of the piece right now, but there was an element where you were doing some, that you had spoken word via virtual satellite and we were performing around that. And, and there was a timepiece involved in things. So there's, there's a lot of that kind of integrated medium that Anthony does also interplay with. Yeah, yeah, cool. that piece is called Connections. Thank you, Connections, right, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so Anthony, what is coming up next for you? So in the fall and the spring, I will be an invited composer, performer at Penn State and the University of Buffalo and Bucknell University and also the University of Tampa. And I have some exciting performances that will happen from various ensembles and soloists. And I will also be working on my very first sax concerto. And I will be working on a piece for wind ensemble. Sounds like a busy upcoming season. Yeah, well, that's just scratching the surface. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really excited for you. Yeah, no, I, I am a huge supporter of your music and your artwork. Thank you for your contribution to our field. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And y'all are amazing too. So don't forget that. (laughs) Oh, thank you. And thanks. (laughs) Thanks again for sharing with us. I would like to dive a little bit more into your pieces. I only got the clips, so that's all I've heard. So this is a question specifically for me, but also for our listeners. Um, Where can people hear more of your music or find you on the internet? Yes. Well, if I get around to updating my website, it is anthonyrgreen.com. And on my website, you'll find links to my SoundCloud, which I think is the fastest way to just listen to my music. And that is soundcloud.com slash P-I-A-R-G-N-O. And if you Google me, please Google Anthony R. Green. Don't forget the R. It's very important. (laughs) Or you can Google Anthony Green Composer. And if you click videos, then you'll see a slew of YouTube and Vimeo videos that have performances of my music. And for more performance art-oriented stuff, as well as music, my Vimeo is vimeo.com slash P-I-A-R-G-N-O, P-I-A-R-G-N-O, just like my SoundCloud. And that's also linked on my website. And that's also your Instagram. My Instagram is P-I-A-R-G-N-O 84. That's my birth year. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for spending this time with us and for sharing your music. And I look forward to connecting again soon. Yeah, it's yeah. so good to see you, Anthony. It really, it's it's always a pleasure. Yes, you too. So thank you so much for having me and enjoy the rest of your days. Thank you. you. Cheers. 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 Well, like, yeah. subscribe. Yeah. Poor Me Mozart is on Instagram and Facebook at Poor Me Mozart. You can email us at formiamozart at gmail.com. Please rate on iTunes. I think you can rate and write reviews on Spotify. I think so. Yeah. If you're feeling extra generous, the Patreon is active again. It is surprise, surprise at formiamozart. Follow us all the places. Yeah. And tell your friends and family. Yes, please.
On the next episode of Pour Me a Mozart, Patty and I talk to LA-based saxophonist and songwriter Jason Fabus. It's kind of bringing up this fact that like we don't have to always try to be writing the next best thing or something that's different and stands out from everything else. Like there's 12 notes on the piano, there's a handful of chords and scales, and it's okay to use those and keep writing music. I started in fifth grade on alto saxophone, and to this day, that's still what I consider my voice. It's my truest voice. Yeah, and if I can say that about saxophone, then I should be able to say that about my voice. You're you're 100%. I'm still a saxophone player. That's how I want to express myself. But occasionally I'm going to sing a couple songs and that's that's where I'm at and that's what I do.